We uh, interrupt our regular Ephesians broadcast this morning (laughs) to spend some time looking at the events of Passion Week. Palm Sunday is the traditional beginning of Christianity's commemoration of Christ's passion, the, the week of His suffering. It's the time that we remember what it cost Jesus to pay the price for our sins and to celebrate His victory over the grave. It starts today. Now, our study will be in Luke 19, our Scripture reading, but I will be referencing a lot of prophecies from the Old Testament. I'll be referencing quite, uh, pretty much all the other gospel accounts of the triumphant entry at some point. But before we dive in, you know, some might wonder, what is so important about Jesus' triumphant entry to Jerusalem that we wouldn't just go straight to Good Friday? Like, why do we even have a name for today? Why is it an important day? Why start here? Well, for starters, all four gospel writers give an account of the triumphant entry. That can't be said about everything in Jesus' life and ministry. There are only a few things that every gospel writer includes in their account. Every gospel writer wrote with a different goal and a different purpose in mind. But all of them, every single one of them, all four of them believed that including the account of Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem, that that would help accomplish their purpose. They decided, of all the things they could include in Jesus' life, that I need to include this part. John the Beloved, who wrote the Gospel of John decades after all the other three Gospels had been completed and distributed, he decided, he goes, we need to talk about this again. I need to write about this again. And so that should cause us to stop for a moment and go, I need to understand its significance. It's pretty important. It's worth studying. In addition to that truth, there are at least three other reasons I could come up with that Jesus' triumphant entry is very important to us. Number one, a, a very specific prophecy needed to be fulfilled. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, Daniel received a prophecy or a a prediction from an angel that predicted the exact day the Messiah would proclaim himself in Jerusalem. That's a pretty cool thought when you think about it. And so the fact that Jesus rode into Jerusalem and proclaimed himself as Messiah, was proclaimed as Messiah, and he accepted that, he received that, proved that he is the one who fulfills that prophecy. In fact, in Luke 19, when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem in verse 39, it mentions that as people are saying, Hosanna, which was a reference to the Messiah, blessed be the king that comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're saying that you're the Messiah, you're the Messiah. So much so that the Pharisees, some of them who were in the crowd, they called out to Jesus and said, teacher, tell them to stop, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus replied and said, I tell you that if they should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Jesus wasn't just being hyperbolic. He was saying it has to be proclaimed today. The prophecy predicted on this day, this would happen. And so if they don't say something, the very rocks will cry out because it has to happen today. So that's one important reason that we need to know this event. It fulfills that very important prophecy. The second reason is that all the other scriptures about the Messiah's first coming needed to be fulfilled. In Luke chapter 18, verse 31, 
right as Jesus is, is kind of making his pivot to come to Jerusalem, it says, he took unto him the 12 disciples, the 12, and said unto them, behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. That's what Jesus said. I, we're going to Jerusalem, and everything that has to happen, that was predicted would happen, is going to happen. So the triumphant entry is the catalyst for all these fulfillments. It fulfills some prophecies, and it begins the process of all the other ones being fulfilled. The third reason that Jesus' triumphant entry is important to study is because Jesus needed to make a genuine offer of the kingdom to Israel. And I emphasize that word, need. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, a famous prophecy of the Messiah, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Behold, your king comes unto you. He is just, and he has salvation. He has salvation in his hand. He's bringing rescue to you. He is, has it, possesses it in his hand. He's bringing it to you. Lowly and riding upon a donkey, and upon a colt, the foal of a donkey. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus uses the word need when he describes the, go get the donkey. Tell, why are you taking the donkey? Tell him the, the Lord has need of him. Jesus needed to do something on this day. He needed to offer, genuinely, offer the kingdom to the nation of Israel. It's interesting. It doesn't say that he comes riding to you on a donkey and he'll bring salvation. It says he possesses it in his hand. He has it. Jesus had something he offered them right then and there, genuinely offered them. And that reason, this third reason, that Jesus needed to make a genuine offer of the kingdom to Israel is a subject I would like to dig into this morning. And my goal is to share three proofs that Jesus did indeed make a genuine offer of the kingdom to the nation of Israel when he rode into Jerusalem. And my inspiration for this goal has been our study in Ephesians, because what we have learned in Ephesians supports this truth. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you to go on a journey with me in Ephesians Easter. We'll start here. We'll, on Good Friday, we'll look at what Ephesians has to say about the cross, and then on next Sunday, we'll talk about what Ephesians has to say about the resurrection because we've been learning these things, and now we need to look at them and how they are fulfilled and how they work out in Passion Week. And my hope is that by adding this study to what we've learned in Ephesians, we will see that Palm Sunday matters to us still, even all these centuries after it occurred. So, you ready? All right. So our main study will be in Luke 19. I will be referencing quite a few other passages, so be prepared if you want to follow. We'll be flipping around a little bit, but mainly we'll be here. Proof number one, that Jesus made a genuine offer to the nation of Israel of the kingdom. Jesus, number one, he entered Jerusalem differently than he entered heaven. We learned last week in Ephesians that about Jesus' triumphant arrival into heaven, right? That Jesus, through his death on the cross, that he disarmed Satan and destroyed his power in the realm of death, right? That he who ascend, uh, ascended also first descended, right? That Jesus became a man, the incarnation. He entered our world. He lived in our muck and our mire. And 
then he went to the cross. And the Bible says that when he ascended up on high, he led the prisoners of war captive. In Colossians 2.15, it says that he defeated our enemy. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. We saw that that word means that Jesus took Satan. He led the Satan and the fallen angels as his prisoners of war, putting his foot on our enemy's neck, disarming him and destroying his power in the realm of death. Well, before that triumphant entry into heaven came Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem just a few days earlier. But when we look at those two triumphant entries, one to heaven, leading, parading the prisoners of war, our enemy, captive, and the one in Jerusalem, they look very different, don't they? In Luke chapter 19, verse 37, it tells us that when he was come near, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, that sounds like a parade, right? Looks like a parade. So, so far, seems similar. And yet, here is where things begin to change. Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he was come near, he beheld the city, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, at least in this your day, the things which belong unto your peace. But they didn't. And so he says, But now they are hid from your eyes. Jesus' power in putting the smackdown on Satan and the fallen angels after the cross is radically different than Jesus' peaceful entry into Jerusalem. How so? There's no war before Jesus arrives at Jerusalem, no battle. Jesus parades no prisoners of war behind him, only supporters. Jesus does not put his foot on an enemy's neck when the procession ends and he reaches the city. Instead, Jesus weeps very different. To understand that difference, I think we need to think of what Jesus could have done at any moment to his naysayers. In Luke 19.39, the Pharisees say, Master, tell your disciples to be quiet. You don't talk to the king that way, by the way. Jesus could have said, oh, you want me to tell my disciples to be quiet? How about we quiet you instead? Skidoosh. Crispy critter Pharisees. All right, everybody, shall we continue? He could have done that. Or Jesus could have spoken a word and slapped the irons on them and dragged them behind him triumphantly as his prisoners of war to the gates of the city, hopped off his donkey and placed his foot on each of their necks. You say, oh, well, that's silly. You think I'm being fanciful? Turn to John 18 with me. One of the most interesting sections of Scripture, in my opinion, it always makes me chuckle when I read it. John 18, verse 3, it says, Judas then, having received a band of men, the word band there means a cohort, that's 600 Roman soldiers. 
Judas is coming down from the Temple Mount with 600 Roman soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They come with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you ever go to Israel with us, we'll, we go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and you can see right up to the Temple Mount. They were seeing the torches coming down and approaching the Garden. He sees all this happening. 600 armed soldiers, and he's got his 11 ragtag disciples who've got two swords. Jesus, therefore, verse 4 says, John 18, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth. So he goes out to meet them, and he says to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Remember, it's dark. And Jesus said unto them, if you have King James, it says, I am he, but he is in italics because he doesn't say he. He says, I am. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Again, I chuckle when I read that because then it just proceeds and then he gets arrested. But it's almost like in that moment, Jesus gives a little glimpse of what could have been. Remember when Peter, he was not a very good defender, by the way. I, I would not hire a bodyguard that's aiming for a neck and only hits ears. Not a good bodyguard. But remember, he turned to him and said, Peter, don't you know, if I, if I want to end this, I just, I just speak. And the Father give me a legion of angels. They think a co- cohort is bad? You know, let me, I'll show you bad. I'll show you tough. I'll show you power. He said, but nevertheless, that the Scriptures be fulfilled. Put up your sword, man. This has to happen. So, so Jesus, they, but he gives us a little glimpse of that. They come out. Who are you looking for, guys? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. They all cower and then fall on their face. The fall back doesn't mean they fell down. It means they prostrated themselves. They fell on their face. Jesus is fully in charge and could wipe them out at any moment with just a word. I'm not being fanciful. And we don't even need to stop with just Israel's leaders. Jesus he would have given the kingdom to the whole world. Here in John 18, in verses 33 through 38, we see Pilate's interaction with Jesus. And Pilate comes in all smug. He says to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus just gets real with him. He goes, do you say this thing of yourself, or did others tell it to you about me? Are you asking me this because you're truly curious, or just because that's what people told you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? I don't, I don't know all your religious politics and all this stuff. I don't know. All, I don't care about that. All I know is this. Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you unto me. What have you done? Like, what's the real deal here? And Jesus says, the real deal is I am a king. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my, would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom's not from here. Oh, I want it to be, but it's not. That's not the plan. They don't want that. Verse 37, so Pilate goes, ah, are you a king then? And Jesus answered, you say correctly or rightly that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. 
And there is a sense he is laying out the offer to Pilate as well. Are you of the truth, Pilate? If you're of the truth, I can be your king. Pilate's smug reply, what is truth? It hasn't gotten anybody anywhere. Not getting you anywhere. Jesus at that moment could have said, oh, you don't value truth, Mr. Pilate? Well, I do. In fact, righteousness and truth are the foundations of my throne. Skidoosh. Crispy critter Pilate and all the soldiers. Or Jesus could have slapped Pilate and all the soldiers in irons. He could have thrown every soldier back with a word just like he did earlier in the day. And he could have paraded Pilate in front of the entire city and then placed his foot on the Roman governor's neck just like he did with Satan. But in contrast to what Jesus could have done, he entered Jerusalem on a donkey, a peacetime animal, not a war horse, a peacetime animal. And he didn't start a war. He didn't wipe anyone out. He patiently endured all their critique. And then as he reached the city, he burst into tears as he contemplated the awful judgment they would experience for rejecting his offer. Jesus is the definition of what we've been learning about in Ephesians, the definition of lowliness and meekness when he enters Jerusalem. Just like Zechariah 9.9 predicted he would be, he comes to you lowly, riding on a donkey, a peacetime animal, offering salvation, having it in his hand, and offering it to you. You see, unlike Jesus' dealings with Satan, Jesus did not force the kingdom on Israel when he openly proclaimed himself on Palm Sunday, even though he could have. You see, for three years, Jesus gave Israel a sample of God's kingdom, righteousness, what it looks like, healing all those who came of their sicknesses, bringing them back to the Lord. And during those three years, Jesus also made it clear that the kingdom God promised would only be possible if he was its king. And here at the end of these three years, Jesus rides into Jerusalem and he makes his offer. Will you accept the kingdom I will bring? Will you choose to have me as your king? None of that was offered to Satan, was it? None of it. Hey, buddy, have you, you rethought this whole rebellion thing? Give you a second chance. No. Jesus snatched the keys of death and the grave, and he slapped the irons on him, beginning the parade to heaven. The only explanation for why Jesus would do things differently that he gives to us is, I need to do this. The Lord has need. I need to do this. Jesus needed to make this offer. He needed to give Israel a chance to accept by faith all God wanted for them. He needed to give them a chance to repent that they might escape the coming judgment. Now, Jesus did not just need to make this offer. He also wanted to make this offer, which brings us to proof number two. Not only did Jesus enter Jerusalem very differently than he entered heaven, but Jesus displayed heartbroken love when he offered the kingdom to Israel. You see, Israel rejecting the kingdom was not God's will. I hear people say all the time when something happens like that, well, God is sovereign. Let's pause for a moment and let's chat about that, please. The fact that God is sovereign, in his sovereign 
control and sovereign will, God chose to give us free will, chose to make us moral agents, and chose that our choices would matter, that they actually matter. So we cannot all of a sudden say when something bad happens that, well, God is sovereign and that was part of His plan. The Bible tells us that God is not willing that any should perish. That means things happen that God doesn't want to happen because we know that some do perish, don't we? So Israel rejecting the kingdom was not what God wanted. Jesus knew they would reject his offer even as he made the offer. We see that at the end of his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. In Luke 19, verse 42, he says, If you had known, even you at least in this your day, the things which belong unto your peace. But they didn't. Now, he says, they are hid from your eyes. And so because of that, he says, the days will come upon you that judgment will come. The city will be leveled to the ground. Now, the question we have to ask is, why would God waste time and resources doing this, making a genuine offer of the kingdom when He's omniscient and He knows Israel won't accept Jesus' offer? Why not just go in, get arrested immediately, and go right to the cross? You say, well, well, He had to die on the Passover. Okay, then why not go in on the Passover? Go in, get arrested, die on the cross. Let's get it over with. Why all this first? Some might argue that well, Jesus' offer can't be genuine because he hid the offer from him. That's what he says here. It's now hid from their eyes. But that's not what Jesus is saying here when he says it was hid from their eyes. Jesus, in fact, already explained to us what he meant by hid. If we go to Luke chapter 9, we see the story of the man who was born blind and Jesus heals. He was out there on the southern steps of the temple and Jesus heals him. And then chaos ensues. Now the Pharisees don't know what to do. The religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they don't know what to do. And so they bring this guy in and they grill him. They bring his parents in, they grill them. Then they bring him back in and grill him again. Because what they're hoping that someone will do is they'll somehow implicate Jesus and and that way they can't give Jesus the credit for this. And so finally they just tell the guy, say, listen, we know this this guy's a heretic. Give glory to God. You testify right now legally, God did this, not Jesus. And the guy refuses, and they excommunicate him from from Judaism. You can't come to the temple anymore. You can't worship. You can't have any sacrifice for your sins. Well, Jesus goes and finds him. He goes and ministers to him. And as he's talking to this guy, Jesus is telling him who he is and telling him it's going to be all right. You follow me, you're going to be fine. They overhear him as he's, then this guy does. He says, Lord, I believe, and he worships Jesus. They're overhearing all this. And Jesus says, for judgment, I I am coming to this world that they which see might not see, and they which see might be made blind. They which see not might see, and they which see might be made blind. Some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, are we blind also? (laughs) Who are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, then you should have no more sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. What's Jesus saying? 
things are hid from their eyes because they've chosen to put things on their eyes that don't allow them to see. Israel's leaders rejected Jesus' offer because they stubbornly clung to the idea that they knew the Scriptures when they did not. That's how we all get into trouble. That's how we all get blinders on. Well, I know God, or I know what's true. I know what the Bible says. And then the Lord's trying to go, you don't. Actually, you don't. What you're, how you're living right now and how you're speaking or how you're thinking about things is not what my word says. And what we do then is we go, no, I'm not listening to that. I'm not listening to that. When we do that, our hearts become hard and we replace our own ideas with what God's word says. And this is what the religious leaders had done. You see, they had ideas about the Messiah. They had ideas about Judaism. They had ideas about Israel, ideas about God, ideas that they had written in their commentaries about the Scriptures, so much so that they didn't even know their own Scriptures anymore. But when they would quote their rabbis or quote their commentaries or quote their writings, and, and it would uh, inform how they lived and how they acted, many times it even contradicted what God said. And so Jesus frequently he would say, you, you err because you don't know the Scriptures. He said, search the Scriptures, for they talk about me. Moses wrote about me. But they didn't. This can happen to any of us when we do not expose ourselves to the Word of God. It's one of the things you decided to do today when you came to church today. Maybe you didn't even know it. But when you walked through those doors, you were basically saying, God, hit me with your best shot. You did. You exposed yourself. You said, I'm going to listen to this weirdo talk about the Bible, and God's going to speak to me. And every time we open up our Bible, we do that. God, hit me with your best shot. And there are times when the Lord says, I, there are times I'll be reading my Bible, and I'm like, Lord, we do what they did. We, I don't, that doesn't fit into my theology, Lord. That doesn't, that doesn't fit into how I see God or how I see Christianity or how I see church or family or marriage, whatever. And, we, you know, and the Lord's saying, you're wrong, Will. That's why it doesn't fit. You're wrong. I'm trying to show you how to get right. And the beautiful part is that when we respond to that, the blinders come off and now we can see. That's what Jesus is telling them. He says, the problem is you think you can see when you actually have blinders on. That's your problem. If you were blind, then I could fix that. But because you say you see, you don't want to listen to me. You won't listen to me. And so they rejected what God did say in his word in favor of their own ideas. That blinded them. It hid the truth from their eyes. So Jesus didn't hide the offer from them. They rejected it. Now, the question does come up, well, why even make the offer if you know how it ends up? I mean, can the offer even be truly genuine if you know it can't be received or won't be received? If the offer you make can't actually happen? Can the offer be genuine when you know the offer can't actually take place? or be received, or won't be received? The answer is yes. And we find why the answer is yes in Jesus' love. Jesus' love is displayed when he makes the offer, because in Luke 19, 41, it says when he comes near to the city, he beheld it. 
and he wept over it. The word here for weep, it means to burst into tears. Have you ever been at a memorial service or or a wedding or some other emotional event and you're trying to keep it in, you're trying to keep control of your emotions and then all of a sudden you see something or you hear something or something happens and it just, you can't hold it back anymore. And now everyone sees that you're affected by this. That's what this word means. It signifies audible and visible weeping. It's not like Jesus was riding down on the donkey and he gets close to Jerusalem, looks at the city, and a little tiny tear comes down his cheek. Peter comes by and he goes, everything okay, Lord? Oh, it's not sun in my eyes, sun in my eyes. King, king, king gets sun in his eyes sometimes. No. Jesus had all the emotion inside of him, everything he wanted for them, and he saw they wouldn't take it. And when he reached the city, the dam burst. And all those emotions came out, and he just burst into tears. In Luke 19, 42, he says, if you had known, even you at least in this your day, it's, it's, man, if, if all you had today was the prophecy of Daniel, if that's the only scripture you knew, you might have been okay. But you didn't even know that one. The word if here, though, it, it's a second-class conditional clause. It, it's when you say, you know, it's like saying to someone, if, if you under, just understood how much I loved you, we wouldn't be fighting like this. You wouldn't take the words I say this way. It expresses an unrealized wish or a frustrated desire. Jesus wanted them to say yes with everything in his being, even though he had full knowledge they would say no. He wanted them to say yes. And this is the love that Paul prays in Ephesians 3, 18 and 19 that we would be able to comprehend. The love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Gaining a better grasp of that incomprehensible love of Jesus, it doesn't happen by sitting down and going, taking the thinker pose. It doesn't happen by sitting down and going, I'm going to logic this out in my head. I'm going to logic out the love of God and put it into my little theological system, how it all works. That is not how we understand the incomprehensible love of Christ, which passes knowledge. We understand the love of Christ by watching it in the Word of God, by watching Jesus live it out in His Word. That's how we get an understanding of how His love works. I'm grateful for commentaries and everything. I use them to help me understand the Word of God. But I know Jesus because I sit down with this, and I ask Him to teach me about Himself. One of the best illustrations of Jesus' love is the triumphant entry. Think about it. What kind of love makes a genuine offer to someone you know will reject it? I mean, even, even if you, you think about it, you go, you know, we're going to make this offer. I mean, we're going to put all this time and energy and resources into doing it, but they're going to say no. I know they're going to say no. 99% of the time, you just don't do it. And yet, the knowing Jesus had wasn't like ours. It wasn't just, oh, I've got lots of evidence they'll reject it kind of knowing. This was a I know the future kind of knowing. 
Some might suggest, well, it's a, it's a righteous love. This was the right thing for God to do. That's why Jesus does it. God's God. He's got to do the right thing. But does a love that does the right thing only because it's the right thing weep afterwards? You know what's even more crazy? Jesus didn't stop wanting them to accept it, and he didn't stop offering it after Palm Sunday. In Matthew 23, one of the heaviest rebukes Jesus gives in all of his ministry, it's his last hand reaching out to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's that chapter, you can read it later, it's filled with all the woes. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! And then he just lists all the critiques of why they're so far away from where God wants them to be. And at the end, when their hearts are still hard and they refuse to listen, Jesus cries out in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he weeps. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you like a hen does her chicks. But you would not have it. You didn't want me to. He kept wanting it until the very day he was arrested. Jesus' offer was not fake, and it was not simply fulfilling a righteous requirement. It was rooted in a very real desire that wanted the very best for them and offered that very best to them through every stage of their rejection. It was a love that never gives up. A love that never fails, like 1 Corinthians 13, 8 says. Every time you see the word love in 1 Corinthians 13, you can put Jesus. And his love never failed. We see an example of that with Judas. The Bible tells us in John 13, and you know, Jesus having come to the Last Supper, knowing where he came from, that he came from God, and he was going back to God. It says he loved his disciples unto the very end. And then we read that he washed their feet, Judas included. Which now brings us to our final proof, number three. Jesus did not just need to make the offer. He didn't just want to make the offer. But here's the interesting part. He acted as if the offer was accepted. He acted as if the offer was accepted. Jesus acted as if the kingdom was in place every single day after the triumphant entry. Jesus, he changed his mode of operation during Passion Week. Prior to the triumphant entry, Jesus evaded Jerusalem like the plague. He evaded going to Jerusalem openly. He would only go up secretly, and, and, and then he would kind of pop in and pop out. He stayed mostly up in the northern part of Israel, in Galilee, the Galilee region, really did not spend a whole lot of time in Judea. But not anymore. On Palm Sunday, Jesus enters the city in plain sight with a crowd behind him. In Luke chapter 18, verse 36, it says that it came to pass that as Jesus was come near to Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the wayside begging. And the reason he knew Jesus was there, because it says he heard the multitude pass by and he asked what, it was, what was going on. He's there by the road begging. All of a sudden, he hears this crowd coming through. Jesus was not hiding on this time going to Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 19, verse 1, it says Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And then in verse 3, it says that this guy named Zacchaeus sought to see Jesus, who he was, because he couldn't because of the crowds. Where is he? I can't see him. He was a wee lad. He was of small stature. So he climbed up a tree. 
Jesus came in with multitudes this time, openly. And then after Jesus enters Jerusalem on Sunday, he heads straight to the temple and he surveys the situation up there. In Mark chapter 11, we read that he, Jesus, verse 11, chapter 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around about upon all things and the evening was come, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So the king comes in, he comes and he expects his kingdom. He looks around. John chapter 2 tells us that Jesus had three years prior come to the temple and cleansed it, kicked out all the money changers. And so he comes in three years later and he goes, they're back. We'll deal with that tomorrow. Leaves the city after he surveys everything, and then he comes in the next day. Mark chapter 11, verse 15. And they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple, and he began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple. And he overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves, and he would not allow that any man should carry any vessel, any wares, any goods to sell through the temple. First, Jesus comes in and he cleans house and he sets up a base camp of operations on the Temple Mount. Now, I don't know about you, but guarding the Temple Mount or patrolling the Temple Mount is not like patrolling that door. It's a massive structure area, massive area. What would it take for one man to make sure anybody coming up with their goods they want to sell to turn around and go, I'm out of here? I don't know. But Jesus had command of that whole Temple Mount. He went up there, and if somebody came up with his stuff, and he'd, all right. He may either put it down or leave. You're going to come here to worship, or you're not coming. Whew. And after that happened, it says, he taught them, saying, is it not written, my house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But you've made it a den of thieves. Jesus quotes the end of Isaiah 56, verse 7 here. But all of Isaiah 56, 6 and 7 are important. Isaiah 56, verse 6, it says this. Now, it's talking about the Messianic age, by the way. This is what the Messiah will do in his kingdom. Also, the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants, everyone that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it and takes hold of my covenant. All these foreigners who want to follow me Even them will I bring to my holy mountain, that's the temple mount, and make them joyful in my house of prayer, the temple. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's the part that Jesus quotes. The money changers were set up in the court of the Gentiles on the temple mount. Jesus goes into the court of the Gentiles. He goes, this was a place created for people who are not Israelites to come and worship God. No more are you going to keep your junk up here. No more are you going to profit off things up here. My house will be a house of prayer. I am bringing the kingdom that Isaiah predicted by making God's temple a house of prayer for all nations starting today. And then he kept it that way until he was arrested. In addition to that, While Jesus is up there on the Temple Mount, he teaches openly every single day until his arrest. In Luke chapter 19, 47, it tells us that after he cleansed the the temple of all the money changers, kicked them out, it says that he taught daily in the temple every single day. In Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13, another messianic chapter, it says, and all your children shall be taught by the Lord. 
Then while Jesus is on the Temple Mount, he heals every single person that comes to him, and he receives praises from the crowds. In Matthew chapter 21, verses 14 and 15, it says this, 21, 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. So Jesus is up on the Temple Mount. It wasn't just the triumphant entry, but every day later, he's healing everybody who comes to him, and the children are singing songs. They're singing Hosanna. And the Pharisees overhear it. And they said to Jesus, Matthew 21, 16, do you hear what these say? I love Jesus' answer. He goes, yeah. Yeah. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, you have perfected praise. I'm doing what the Messiah is supposed to do. He quotes from Psalm 8 here. Psalm 8 is a psalm that talks about man's dominion over the earth, which will find its full fulfillment in Messiah. I'm doing what the Scripture said I would do. This is what the kingdom looks like, guys. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, drives out everything that displeases the Father, and then replaces it with his rule and his teaching, just like the prophecy said the kingdom would be. And during Passion Week, we get a glimpse of the kingdom. And all those people who went up on that temple mount every day after the triumphant injury until they arrested Jesus experienced the kingdom. Which brings us to some final thoughts. The so what? Okay, so Jesus made a genuine offer of the kingdom to Israel. Why does that matter? Why is that important? I often wonder when we talk about Jesus' coming, second coming, to set up his kingdom, if we really think about what that means. Am I really ready for Jesus to drive out everything in this world that displeases the Father and to replace it with his rule and with his teaching? Am I really ready for that? Now, some of you might say, well, of course I am. I want sickness to be done away with. I want injustice and exploitation to be dealt with. I want an end to pain and to suffering. But I would suggest to you, so did many in Israel. But we know they weren't ready for all of that because they rejected him. And they rejected him because bringing those things also meant removing everything from their individual lives that displeased the Father. If Jesus removing everything from your life that displeases the Father doesn't also excite you, then you're not ready for Jesus' kingdom to come either, no matter how much the other concepts of the kingdom excite you our response will be no different to Jesus' genuine offer to save me than it was to save Israel. Which is why understanding the significance of the triumphant entry is so important. Jesus came to Jerusalem very differently than he entered heaven. He came offering peace, and he still does. He's still a king, but he's lowly and meek, and he loves us to the very end and he offers to us all the benefits of him being our king. 
When Jesus returns to Jerusalem a second time, it will not be that way. When he comes riding, it won't be on a donkey next time. It will be on a white horse, and he will carry a sword. And he will speak. And all the rebels, Jesus, tell your disciples to be quiet. Skadoosh. Bible says they will melt. He will speak, and they will be gone. All the rebels. He will deal with us if, if we're opposed to him the same way he dealt with Satan. So now is the time <laughs> to accept the offer of peace. Now is the time to accept his hand in mercy. Now is the time to let him reign in my heart, removing, let, so he can remove all the things that displease the Father, and so he can bring the blessing of his teaching and his care into my life. Amen? That's what now is for. And so I ask you this morning, as the worship team comes up, is he reigning in your heart? Is he your king? Let's all stand. Lord, we're saying how great is our God, how great is our king, and we think of, Lord, all that you've done for us, how you went to the cross for us and died for us. But Lord, before you did that, you entered Jerusalem as a king. You were in the room, and Lord, in your love, you offered them peace. You offered them the kingdom. Lord, we don't want to be those who bring up all our objections like the religious leaders did. We don't want to be like Pilate who we smugly ignore the kingdom that you offer to us. We want your kingdom in our hearts. We want you to reign in our hearts. And so this morning, Lord, for every person who is here who, who might be saying to you right now, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, you haven't been my king. I haven't let you reign. I'm not letting you remove the things that displease you. I'm fighting against you or I'm ignoring you or I'm scoffing at the things you're trying to do in my life. Lord, I pray even as they're turning to you in repentance and confession of sin, Lord, that you would forgive, that you would receive their prayer, and that you would reign in their hearts even as they're asking you to do so. Lord, I pray for anyone here today whose eyes might be blind, and maybe, Lord, maybe, just maybe, you've, you've kind of fired the, the broadside cannon and, and you've gotten their attention. Lord, as their eyes are open, that you'd show them how much you love them, show them how much your way is better. Lord, that none of us would leave here today with blinders in our eyes and hard hearts. Lord, you are a good king. You're meek and lowly. You love us. You never give up on us. So Lord, have your way, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.